The telephone cooperatives are very used to serving these very sparsely populated rural areas in North Carolina. That's what they were designed to do. That's why they were made. This is episode 224 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Recently, we released a report focusing on the availability of high-quality internet access in North Carolina. H.R. Trossel, a research associate at the Institute, and one of our authors on muninetworks.org, analyzed data from several different sources, and she's talking to Chris this week to discuss her conclusions. She and Chris, who co-authored the report with her, discovered that municipal networks and cooperatives have an important role to play in North Carolina. Take a few minutes to download the report and check out the detailed maps that show the results of their analysis. The report is titled, North Carolina Connectivity, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and it's available at ILSR.org and MuniNetworks.org. Now here are Chris and H.R. Trossel from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance discussing in detail their recent report and their findings on internet access in North Carolina. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Coming to you live today from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance Offices in Minneapolis with H.R. Trossel, the co-author of our new report on North Carolina. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Hannah. Hi. I thought we would start with a broad overview of what did the report cover? The report covered everything from electric co-ops to municipalities. It included um, telephone co-ops. It involved a lot of digging through a lot of FCC data. What kind of data? What were we looking for? Um, I looked at the FCC Form 477, which is deployment data. It also includes like maximum advertised upload speeds and download speeds, but it doesn't include things like pricing information. Right. This has been long. One of the issues that we have found infuriating is that um, the carriers can just say what they're offering, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not, um, you know, to some extent. Um, it's very difficult for CenturyLink to know what it can offer in rural areas because the DSL is so poor, it varies from house to house. Uh, But they never have to disclose how much they're charging for it, which really makes it difficult to make good policy around this. Yeah, they also don't differentiate between different tiers. So it literally only tells me the maximum advertised. They may advertise that they offer 15 to 20 megabits per second, when in actuality you get maybe two. Right. And we, we know that that situation in Pine Tops, in, uh, just outside of Wilson, which we'll, we'll cover here in a few minutes. But I think one of the things that I found most interesting was that basic broadband access, which is overstated. Um, you know, actually, why don't you just give us like, the numbers <laughs> and facts that we're going to use from 477 data from the FCC. Are th- is, is that super accurate? It's not the greatest amount of accuracy. I could wish for more. (laughs) Is it randomly inaccurate or is it consistently inaccurate in one decision, in one direction? It's mostly inaccurate in rural areas because the census blocks are so large. The way the FCC's Form 477 is set up is each provider notes what they offer by census block. And rural areas tend to have very giant census blocks with very few people. So that means that if a few people have access, maybe like it's like the census block in which um, you have uh, the edge of a town and you have a few people that have access, but the rest of the census block has no access, the Form 477 data would suggest that everyone has access in that block. Exactly. Even if two people have access, 
all 20 some people in the census block are considered as having access. And let's imagine one other thing, which is to say that you have a census block in which um, in the north side you have one provider that's offering a service, and in the south side you have a different provider that's offering a service. Um, in the middle, nobody can get anything. But we can't tell, if, if, as far as we know, and I think how that data is often interpreted, um, people might think there is competition and universal service in that block. It's actually pretty great. The FCC's Form 477 specifically says that you should not try to use it to generate competition data, but everyone tries to use it to generate competition data for exactly that problem. Right. But we can have a sense of at least... I think we had, so the report and the numbers in the report are a best case scenario. Yep, absolute and, best case. And I found it interesting. I actually thought that, that North Carolina has better basic broadband access than I expected. Um, what is, what's basic broadband access and who has access to it there? Basic broadband access is the FCC definition of 25 megabits per second download and 3 megabits per second upload speed. Advertised. Just advertised. Obviously. <laughs> right. You might not actually get that. Right. So In fact, has... some areas you can get like uh, 20 megabits per second as a normal affordable speed tier. And then they also offer like 100 megabits per second at some absurd price. So you can't actually get broadband. Because even though you could get a decent connection maybe from a co-op, I think that's what you're talking about here, that you have a co-op that has a plan, it's one of the rare cases in which we have an understatement of who has decent access. Exactly. In, in general, four out of five people in rural North Carolina, approximately, there's a little bit of an overstatement there, but still, most people seem to have basic broadband access from one provider. Uh, four out of five rural residents, for sure, do. Supposedly, according to the data, 93% of all of North Carolina has, has basic broadband access. So one of the things that I found interesting was that I think when you look at the state's reaction, when they did their, um, the, the state of North Carolina did their own report um, a few months ago, uh, we were not really impressed with it. Um, I think their conclusion was, wow, we're doing really well. Sure, we, we got to figure out some way of doing better, but we're doing really well. Our conclusion was that North Carolina is really not doing that well. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I found it interesting there, when you look at their access to higher quality internet access, you often find they it's utterly lacking. You kind of have that basic broadband tier is the maximum in a number of these rural regions, but there's nothing above that. Yeah, it's very, very frustrating, especially looking at where fiber is actually available. It tends to be available in urban areas or from co-ops. Right. So there's not a lot of what, what we would call private sector, private company investment in fiber in rural North Carolina. Not at all which I find very interesting because their urban areas seem to be getting more investment on average. None of these big companies are building out to everyone, but parts of their, of their triangle, parts of Charlotte, parts of the suburbs around there are getting fiber optic assets um, from Google, from um, AT&T, from CenturyLink. Um, at the very least, they've announced it and made it available in a few apartment buildings, but there's been a lot of announcements. There have been a lot of announcements, but there's from what I can tell, very little actually been done. Well, they might just be on their way to doing it. I mean, it might be Eventually. A charitable, it might be a charitable way of reading it. 
Um, um, in part, I just, it, it does seem to me, and you know, you and I both follow these things closely. It seems to me that there is some more investment in fiber optics in urban North Carolina areas than in your average metro regions around the United States. For sure. I've been looking at um, Minnesota and Tennessee as well, um, doing something similar. And there is so little actual private investment in those urban areas of Tennessee and Minnesota. Okay. Let's move on to talking about some of the, the subsidies, because what I'm confused about is AT&T and CenturyLink seem to be getting a king's ransom from the Connect America Fund, and yet they're not investing significantly in these areas, from what I can tell. So how much are they getting? From the Connect America Fund, AT&T has accepted about $3.5 million each year to serve about 13,000 people by 2020, with not a broadband connection, but a connection of 10 megabits per second download speed. So let's unpack this for a second, all right? So $3 million <laughs> per year for four years. So $12 million? Just about. Um, to connect how many homes? To connect 13,000 in rural and underserved areas. Right, specific areas where they do not have, um, according to the map, uh, broadband access. Um, and by 2020, they will deliver a connection that is 10 megabits down and one megabit up. Yes. At a minimum. Now, in some areas, and we'll talk about CenturyLink's numbers in a second, in some areas, I think we'll see them exceed that. I think CenturyLink will only provide that basic connection to some of their homes, but some of their homes will probably get a 40 by 5 connection or, you know, occasionally maybe a gigabit. I kind of, I really doubt that, frankly, but but they'll probably, homes that are close enough to the D-SLAM, which is the, I always call it the magical device that turns your copper phone lines into an internet provisioning, um, you know, system. Um, people that are close enough will get higher speeds than 10 by 1. But AT&T seems to be really going for that minimum speed. They're just doing this wireless-only product. This news really came out after our report was put to rest. But but it's worth noting that AT&T seems to be really taking it seriously that they do not have to outperform 10 by 1. That's what they want to do. <laughs> yeah. CenturyLink, meanwhile, is getting about $10 million per year. And they're going to serve 36,000 people with that same baseline. I can only imagine what these co-ops in North Carolina could be doing with $40 million a year. I find it infuriating that Uncle Sam is throwing away here in just two companies $52 million to provide connections that would have been obsolete last year. It's really, really frustrating. Let's move on to what the co-ops are doing. Um, what did you find in terms of, uh, let's talk about the telephone cooperatives first. Uh, what are they doing in North Carolina? Yeah, so there are eight telephone cooperatives in North Carolina, and all of them are deploying some sort of fiber for internet service. Um, six have committed to serving their entire service areas. Um, several have actually completed those projects. The map is looking so much nicer. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's remarkable when you see the map that you prepared of where fiber exists in rural North Carolina. You see these these areas in like, um, you know, the central northern part of the state, you have this big block. In the northeastern part of the state, you have this big block where it seems that every last person has access because they're served by a telephone cooperative. Yes, and the telephone cooperatives are very used to serving these very sparsely populated rural areas in North Carolina. That's what they were designed to do. That's why they were made. I was actually talking with a reporter and I made that exact point. The reporter was kind of saying, well, is it surprising to you that uh, the private sector is not getting this job done in rural North Carolina? And I was thinking, 
No, it is not surprising. These are people who are served by co-ops because for a hundred years we understand that the private sector does not do a good job providing the essential infrastructure for rural communities. The business model does not work for the way that they want it to. So we have telephone co-ops and we have electric co-ops. And it shouldn't be surprising that these uh, approaches are the ones that are best serving North Carolina's rural communities. Yeah, and North Carolina has 26 electric co-ops. Um, several have already taken steps to providing fiber to the home or fiber to the business. Um, Lumbee River, Blue Ridge Mountain, they are in possibly even more sparsely populated areas than the telephone cooperatives. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's not very surprising, frankly. I mean, um, the electric co-ops serve so much of the state that on average, I can imagine, um, not, not even average, the, the electric co-ops serve such a large part of the state that um, there's just so many more opportunities for them to be serving the least dense areas, the areas that are the hardest to reach. Um, but, you know, these electric co-ops have historically, I feel like, resisted getting involved. Are you seeing that changing in your conversations with North Carolina's electric co-ops or as they call them, EMCs? Yeah, um, EMCs is Electric Membership Corporation. That conversation is really changing, and part of that is the electric cooperatives are deploying fiber to communicate with their substations. So they already had that as a growing part of their electrical infrastructure, and now they can actually use that for telecommunications. Previously, their infrastructure that would have been good for broadband access would have been just the poles. Yeah, you know, when you say communicate with the substations, I always imagine them, hello, substation, how are you doing today? <laughs> um, <laughs> Hello, world. <laughs> so I have to think if I'm the state of North Carolina, I should be really excited about these co-ops investing and trying to promote that and, and doing everything I can to say, hey, how can we make this happen more quickly? How is North Carolina reacting? You read the report. I skimmed it. I did. I read some sections in depth. But the state of North Carolina's report, did they really um, actually recognize the, um, the way that the co-ops are already doing this? They did not recognize the growing role of co-ops, not at all. The state of North Carolina didn't really even address one of the barriers to electric cooperatives getting involved in telecommunications. There's some restrictions around how an electric cooperative can access capital from the Rural Utility Service funds and from the USDA. It's rather discouraging to investment. Yeah, so the state of North Carolina says if you're a, an EMC, if you're a rural electric co-op, you cannot get uh, telecom loans or grants from the rural utility system to rural utility service um, to distribute this. And then you also can't form a subsidiary. Now, there may be other ways uh, for these EMCs to find ways of, of accessing capital and to, to be able to build these networks. But I just find it stunning that the state wants to say, we're going to officially discourage you from accessing the USDA, which is the main system that has built our cooperative um, infrastructure system around the country, that all of the electric co-ops, the telephone co-ops, they've all depended on our rural utility service funding. North Carolina says, hey, you know what? You guys are investing in, in, in our rural communities, but we're going to make it harder on you, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's the exact opposite of what you'd want. It is the complete opposite of what you want. And that's not all. Like Other states also discourage electric cooperatives investment, Tennessee, New Mexico. But there are workarounds. 
Well, there's a will, there's a way, right? Pretty much. <laughs> um, that may not be true with uh, some forms of municipal broadband investment, though. We've we've sort of saved the, the biggest hot button issue for us uh, last, which is HB129 or just H.129, depending on um, the uh, system that you use in, in referencing it. But this is a law from 2011. We've talked about it so many times. The FCC repealed it. It came back. Um, after the Sixth Circuit reinstated it. Um, but basically, North Carolina tells local governments, you cannot build broadband networks. North Carolina does not support municipalities building their own networks. H-129 is sort of a zombie law in the fact that it came back and has now sort of ruined things for highlands and pine tops and a few family farms that really yeah. were depending on that connectivity. Yeah, let's talk about that. So uh, the city of Wilson, incredibly successful municipal fiber network. We've talked about them many times because they were uh, with Chattanooga. The two of them went to the FCC to roll back these laws. Uh, Wilson, during that period when the law was not in effect, built out to some of its neighbors that desperately needed access, who did not have broadband access, who, um, you know, in this in this family farm in Nash County, they could not even... Um, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't basically run their IT systems. They couldn't be a modern uh, packing facility because they didn't have the internet access they needed. Wilson comes along, provides it to them. The state of North Carolina challenges the law, goes to the Sixth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit says the FCC does not have the authority to change that law, so the law is reinstated. Wilson's going to have to disconnect its fiber optic networks from the small community and the nearby family farms. Yeah, Wilson had to vote to do that. They could have tried to continue service, but it would have just led to an even greater mess. They would have had to shut down their entire system, ultimately. Wilson City has universal access. Wilson County has significant access. But it all would have been at risk if they tried to continue under the current law. So um, as this goes to air, there will be one week left, basically, of service that Wilson will be providing to nearby. And then it will have to turn them off. Now, this is the part that kills me, though. The fiber optic cables, the optical network terminal devices will be on the side of the house still. Um, it is just, I find it incredibly frustrating that people are going to have all of the things that they need to have world-class internet service in their home, but the state will say, you can't use it for that. Wilson can use it to monitor the electrical system to say, hey, how you doing to the uh, substations, to communicate with the substations. Um, <laughs> It's there, but they won't be able to deliver internet service. I would say it's a quirk of the law, but it's actually the entire point. <laughs> You're right, exactly. <laughs> um, so here's a question then as we head toward the end, and I'm and I'm done ranting about the injustice in uh, Wilson and Pine Tops and in Altitude and Highlands. What is the next step? What can North Carolina do if it actually has leadership that cares about promoting rural connectivity rather than just lining the pockets of powerful CenturyLink and AT&T, um, you know, the, the, their lobbyists and their, um, and their interests? Well, it would be really simple to repeal H-129, but I don't know if that's actually ever going to happen. Right. Well, let's, let's go a step further and say, let's assume that that got rid of it. And you have some towns that move forward. More importantly, perhaps you have the existing networks able to expand and serve their neighbors. You still have a lot of areas. I mean, what's the, what do you see in terms of the electric co-ops? Is it feasible to think that electric co-ops could solve most of uh, North Carolina's problem or that 
partnerships with the telephone co-ops expanding outside of their areas? I mean, is this a pipe dream or is it something that could happen? No, this is entirely possible. The electric co-ops can work with the telephone co-ops to provide better connectivity. They don't have to actually worry about providing the telecommunication services themselves. They can simply partner with someone who already has experience in doing that. And one of the things that we're starting to get a sense of from some of the reaction to the report is that this is starting to happen and there is hope, I think. There is. It would be a little bit nicer if they could get rid of some of the restrictions on the electric cooperatives' access to capital. Right. Well, and I also think it's, it's as you have the electric co-ops and the telephone co-ops doing this expansion, you have, it must be incredibly frustrating. Let's imagine that you're um, just outside of the, the Wilkes cooperative area um, and uh, the Riverfront Networks. Is River that, Streets. River Street Networks. You are right outside of there and, um, and you're not getting service from them. And they're working with a couple of other areas nearby, but they can't build everywhere at once. North Carolina says, too bad, you can't do it yourself. You have to wait until they come to you or something like that. I, I just, um, I think that the H-129 restrictions are, are such a slap in the face to communities to say, yeah, you're, you're losing property value, you're losing businesses, people don't wanna move in there, but you can't solve the problem yourself. You have to just hope that someone else is gonna come along and solve it for you. Yep, even if you have the technical expertise, you're just not allowed to. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, it's, it runs totally contrary to everything that we believe in at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and what people sh- in communities should be empowered to do. Exactly. So um, I hope that people will have a chance to check out this report. Uh, I think we're going to be seeing more maps, more exciting stuff coming from, uh, from Hannah, from uh, the work that you're doing. And uh, you already previewed a little bit. Tennessee and Minnesota are in the works. So I hope people stay tuned to your work. I hope so, too. That was Chris talking with H.R. Trosel, our colleague and one of the authors of our recent report on connectivity in North Carolina. You can download the report at ILSR.org and MuniNetworks.org to learn about the urban-rural digital divide and how co-ops and Muni Networks are finding ways to close the gap. Remember, we have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at MuniNetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR podcast family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. Thank you to the group Mojo Monkeys for their song Bodacious, licensed to Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 224 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>